Uh, open your Bibles to the book of Judges, and um, we will jump right in. Just a couple of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quickly review last week's lesson, and very quickly. Um, the book of Judges, as you know, takes place after the death of Joshua, and um, Joshua has led the people of Israel into uh, conquering the land and settling the land of Canaan. And, uh, but after he dies, uh, because he has not handed off to someone or mentored someone, um, then things kind of begin to unravel uh, among the Israelites. And that's what the book of Judges is about. The theme that you will hear over and over is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Um, we are not absolutely certain about who wrote the book of Judges. It is very possible that Samuel wrote it. And if Samuel wrote it, he probably wrote it somewhere between 1050 and 1000 B.C. There are 12 judges overall. This is in your notes. Uh, I put, made a little chart there. Um, we covered the minor judges that are on the right of the chart last week. Shagmar, Tola, Jair, Isbon, Elon, and Abdon. And um, the major judges, we talked about Othiniel and Ahud, and we will talk about those last four uh, still today, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. I've divided judges into three sections. The first section we already covered last week, and it just simply was titled, In, in Those Days There Was No Joshua. And so because there was no Joshua, uh, there were some territorial issues. One of the big ones was they didn't drive out the Canaanites. They let the Canaanites dwell there. And then there were some spiritual results as well. And I named three or four. Number one, godliness only lasted one generation. They didn't pass it on to the next. Um, God became angry uh, because of their sin. And they started that cycle. And the cycle is where... Um, they would sin, get caught in idolatry. God would judge them, turn them over to another nation or another people. They would cry out. God would have pity. God would save them through a judge. And then they would go right back in that cycle. That cycle happened over and over throughout the book of Judges. Then the second section. Um, so in this first section, in those days there was no Joshua. Then we started into the section, in those days they, there were judges. And again, we covered the six minor judges, and then we talked about Othiniel, who was from Judah, who delivered the people of God from Mesopotamia. And then we talked about my favorite, Ehud, uh, the only left-handed guy in the Bible. Remember, right before lunch, we told that wonderful story about him putting the dagger in the big belly of Eglon, the Moabite king, and the belly surrounded the, the dagger and... You all just felt so spiritual when you left last week, I know. So that's where we ended last week. So we're going to jump in, turn to chapter 4 of Judges. And uh, we are going to talk about Deborah, um, the only uh, female judge. Judges chapter 4 and the story of Deborah and Barak. Um, I'm going to read a lot of this, um, not all of it, but it, it probably is the best way to grab the picture. So uh, let's talk about uh, Deborah and Barak 
um, and the deliverance of Israel from the Canaanites. When Ehud was dead, chapter 4 and verse 1, when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Heresheth Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. So the Canaanites are um, oppressing Israel under the rule of Jabin, and they have done this now for 20 years. So Deborah, verse 4, was a prophetess, she was the, the wife of Lapidoth, and she was judging. She was the judge of Israel during that time. She would sit under the tree, verse 5, the palm tree, between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel would come up to her for judgment. A, a judge would simply be the one that would make decisions. If they had a case... They wanted a, you know, a dispute between two people. They would bring it to the judge, and the judge would make the decision. Deborah was the one. They would come to this palm tree, and the two parties would say what their issue was, and Deborah would be the one that would judge it. Verse 6, Then she sent and she called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali. And she said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops to Mount Tabor, take with you the 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And um, so she prophesies to um, Barak, and she says that God is going to deliver them from the Canaanites, if he will just go up, if he would take the, 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 the uh, fighting men from Naphtali and the fighting men from Zebulun, uh, Deborah says, God has spoken to me, and you will be able to defeat Jabin and the Canaanites. In verse 9, um, he said to her, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no, or excuse me, Barak, verse 8, said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. It's interesting that a man who is a commander says to a woman who is a prophetess, I will go, but I'm not going to go fight unless you go with me. All right? So he doesn't, um, Barak doesn't come off looking too great in this story. Verse 9, she said to him, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. The Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman and then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So um, God speaks to Deborah, says, I'm going to bring deliverance to Israel from the Canaanites. Tell Barak to go and fight them. She tells Barak and says, take the, the, Naf the Naphtalites and the Zebulonites. Take your army guys and go fight against Jabin. And he says, I'll go, but only if you go with me. To which she responds, that's fine, I'll go with you, but you're not going to be celebrated as the great 
victor, but instead God's going to ultimately give the victory in, by the hand of a woman. So, so Barak loses his blessing. Now, that's the bottom line, because he's not willing to go unless Deborah goes with him, even though she's instructed him by the Lord to go, uh, he is going to lose his blessing as the general of this army. So let's read on in verse 10. Um, So Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men, and Deborah went up with him. And now Heber the Kenite to the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the Terebinth tree, uh, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera uh, gathers together all of his chariots, his 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon, And then Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and all of his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. So God gave the victory. um, um, Barak and his men were able to defeat Sisera's army, the Canaanites. But Sisera got away. The general got away. He was uh, fleet of foot, and he ran away to hide. But Barak, verse 16, pursued the chariots of the army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So Sisera's army is completely depleted, yet Sisera is still alive. Sisera fled away, verse 17, to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was no peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. So she invites him in, says, here, you can hide in here. Come on, Sisera, don't fear. Come in here, hide. They're looking for you. So he goes into the tent, and she covers him with a blanket. Then he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the door of the tent. If any man comes and inquires of you and says, is there any man here, you will say no. So he says to her, listen, uh, you stand out at the door, and if they come looking for me and they ask if I'm in here, say no. And so she says, okay. And uh, so then in verse 21, then Jael, uh, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him. She's got him covered up, all right? He's hiding out. He thinks he's safe. And she gets a tent peg. She went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went down to the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. What do you do with that? I don't know. I'm just, just, that's the story. And then as Barak pursued, Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel, And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, 
until they had destroyed J.B., the king of Canaan. So um, Deborah had told Barak, if you will go, God will deliver the Canaanites into your hand. Barak was afraid to do that and uh, said, not unless you go, Deborah. Deborah says, okay, I'll go, but you're not going to get the ultimate victory. And the ultimate victory is given to J.L., the woman who drives the peg through the temple of Sisera and uh, nails him to the ground, basically, and uh, hands him over then to Barak, who is seeking after him. In chapter 5, Deborah then celebrates with a song that God has delivered her people, and there is 40 years of quiet, 40 years of rest for the Israelites after the victory of in the, in the judging period of Deborah. All right, any uh, great insights there? You want to just move on to Gideon, one you're a little more familiar with? Any questions, comments, insights? You all are going to be um, really experts on the book of Judges when we're done. All right, chapter 6, Gideon and the Midianites. This is a story that probably you are uh, somewhat more familiar with. Let's read a few verses here. Um, It's so hard to know what to read and not. The children of Israel, chapter 6, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian now. So now they're under Midianite control for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because the Midianites, the children of Israel, made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds, which are in the mountains. So whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up also the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, uh, neither sheep or ox or donkey. They would come up with their livestock and their tents, uh, coming in as numerous as locusts, like with their, they and their camels, and they would enter the land to destroy it. And because of that, Israel was impoverished, and they cried out to the Lord. So the, this, um, this um, oppression of the Midianites wasn't so much um, um, military as it was they kind of choked them out physically, uh, their sustenance. They would wait till they had sown the ground. They would hide out in the caves and the dens, and then they would come out and they would plunder the crop so that, that they were starving them out, basically. And for these seven years, they are under the, um, they're under the uh, pressure and the, the torment of the Midianites. So um, they cried out to the Lord in verse number seven. Um, we get to verse eight. The Lord sends a prophet to the children of Israel. And the prophet said to them, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I also said, I am the Lord your God. Don't fear the God of the Amorites, but you have not obeyed my voice. So there is a prophet that speaks to them and tells them why they are in the position they are in. They have disobeyed. And so the prophet speaks to um, to the children of Israel. And it is in that context now that Gideon emerges. Verse 11, 
The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in uh, Ophrah, which belonged to Josiah the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress, and he was doing it, notice threshing wheat in the winepress to do what? To hide it from the Midianites, because they kept plundering. And so Gideon is, is trying to preserve some food for them. And the angel of the Lord comes to him, verse 12, this is what you're probably familiar with, and he calls him mighty man of valor. And and Gideon responds, oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why why has all this happened to us and where are all the miracles which our father told us about saying, didn't the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. By the way, that is a typical response of a people who are walking in disobedience to God. They want to blame God on their problem. And where's God? Where's the God who does all these miracles, who was with our fathers? Well, the prophet has just said, you're in the mess you're in because of your disobedience. And so we have this tendency to um, want to call God out before we check our own lives. So anyway, um, Gideon then is called. And um, in verse 14, the Lord said, Go in this might of yours, and you will save Israel from the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And, of course, Gideon has excuses. He's much like Moses when Moses gets called and has all those excuses. Notice what he says in verse 15. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So, I mean, Gideon is saying, I'm like the bottom tier here. Um, My clan is the weakest in the tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. So you could have found somebody else. And again, that's kind of how God works. David was the youngest and the most pitiful of Jesse's sons too, but that's who God called. So God calls him, verse 16, I will be with you, and you will defeat the Midianites as one man. And then he says, um, If I have found favor in your sight, show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. And um, so Gideon is trying to um, bargain with God. Verse 18, don't depart from here. I will pray until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you came back. And so Gideon tries to get out of this, much like Moses, he tries to get out of the call of God. Jump over to verse 36 of chapter 6. So Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece only, um, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And It was so when he rose early in the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. And then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, Um, but on dry, be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground, let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all of the ground. So you you see what he has done. He is trying to get a 
sign. Sign number one wasn't good enough, so sign number two. Gideon is doing everything he can to get out of God's call. Um, and again, I think we have that same, like, no, you don't really mean me. You don't really want me to do that. And um, that, that's exactly what Gideon is doing here. So get to chapter 7. And um, don't know that I will. Let me just tell you the story. You probably know the story uh, pretty well. So he, he capitulates. He relents. Okay, I'll go. He gets his army together. You know the story? Gideon gets his army together and has 32,000 in his army. And um, God said, no, 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 that's way too many. Uh, if you go beating the Midianites with 32,000, you're going to come back bragging about what a great general you are and what a strong army you have. And um, so we're going to whittle that down. Ask them if they are afraid. Everybody who says they're afraid, send them home. Well, 22,000 of them said they were afraid. All right. So they got sent home. The army is down to 10,000. Let's uh, see if we can pick up the story. Um, let's, let's go to uh, verse 4. Uh, the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. 10,000 still too many. Um, bring them down to the water and I will test them there for you. And it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you. The same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brings the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, set, you shall set apart by himself, likewise to everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. So the dog lapping uh, folks are the ones he's going to take with him to battle. 300. All right. Can you imagine the disappointment of Gideon? 32,000 to 300. And he is supposed to fight the Midianites. And so he, um, his army is whittled down. Um, he is pretty nervous about it. Uh, look at verse 9. Um, happened on the same night that the Lord said, Arise, go down to the camp, for I've delivered it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. You shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands will be strengthened to go against the camp. And he went down with his servant, the Midianites and the Amalekites, verse 12. They were lying in a valley, many as the locusts and the camels, without number, Verse 13, when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream uh, to his companion. And he said, I had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. And his companion answered and said, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. So the night before, God says, if you're not sure you can do this, I want you to go down with your servant and I want you to listen in to what they're talking about. And they go just to the right place and they hear a man saying to his friend, I had a dream. And in this dream, this loaf of bread tumbled down into the camp of the Midianites and destroyed them. And the guy said, in the hearing of Gideon, that was nothing less 
than Gideon and the army of the Lord, and God has delivered the Midianites into the hand of the Lord. Well, that would bolster your confidence a little bit. And so he went back, he's ready to fight, and the next day, um, in verses 16 through 23, I think you know the story, they had trumpets and pitchers with torches in them. And um, they surrounded the Midianites, long story short, and when it was time, they blasted the trumpet. When they blasted the trumpet, Midianites all awakened. You can imagine hearing a trumpet blow at three in the morning when you are fast asleep, all right? Nothing worse than the alarm going off or something like that. Only these are trumpets blowing, 300 of them, and they wake up and, uh, and they break their pitchers so the torches show and these people wake up to trumpet sounds and light everywhere around them and they get so disheveled they fight one another and kill one another and God hands off the battle to uh, Gideon and the Israelites. The least clan in the tribe of Manasseh and the lowest in his family and he becomes the deliverer of Israel. So we get to chapter 8. The men of Ephraim said to him, um, why didn't you call us? Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they were reprimanded him, and then he schmoozes them in verse 2 and 3 and tells them really what they're doing is more important, and so the conflict is, is handled. I go down to verse 22. The men of Israel said to Gideon, we want you to rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also. For you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. They wanted Gideon, by the way, what they were asking Gideon to do is to set up a dynasty, really. His family would be the rulers of Israel. And Gideon said, no, we don't want a dynasty, which is a, which is a good move. I mean, it, it, it shows some humility on his part. But then he's not without heir. Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each one of you would give me the earrings from his plunder, uh, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. And the weight of the gold of the earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Um, And then verse 27, then Gideon made it into an ephod, and he set it up in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it. It became a snare to Gideon and his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so they lifted their heads no more, and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So Gideon won a great victory, but Gideon, very much like Aaron uh, with the golden calf, Uh, Gideon led them into idolatry because he said, no, I don't want to be your ruler, but we'll make an ephod. And they set it up in his city and it became the place they worshiped instead. And so they became snared um, by that. Again, we, we have this tendency to want to make a God that we can handle, that we, you know, that we can manipulate, that we can control, that we can see, that we can rule over. And um, God's not interested in being a God that's manipulated by us or controlled by us. 
and it led Israel into idolatry, which will just continue um, their, their plummet downward. So even though, he, um, even though he is a man that God uses, um, he leads Israel into idolatry. Look at the end of chapter 8. So it was, um, actually, look, look at verse 29 of chapter 8. Then Jerubbabal, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon um, had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had had many wives. And this will become important in a moment. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son whose name he called Abimelech. Okay, so I want you to get this picture. Gideon had 70 sons by wives. But he had a concubine who lived in Shechem who had one son. And that one son was Abimelech. All right? Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died, verse 32, at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father. Verse 33, so it was as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel, look, again, played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel Gideon in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. So Gideon's name is Jerubbabel. That's why both names are used. So he dies. He had 70 sons by his wives, one son in Shechem by his concubine, He had said, no dynasty for me. I'm not going to rule. My son's not going to rule. My grandson's not going to rule. But this is just a little leadership lesson. Whenever there is a vacuum of leadership, when there's nobody to step in, somebody will rush in and take it. And often the one that rushes in and takes it is not the one that ought to be taken. And that's exactly what will happen in this story. Because now, now think about this. Gideon really, even though there's some humility and is, no, 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 we don't want to be the dynasty, Gideon really makes the same mistake Joshua made. He did not mentor anyone to take over after him. And so when there's no one, someone evil will rush in. And that's exactly what's going to happen when we get to chapter 9. So then Abimelech, the son of Gideon, or Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's brothers and spoke with them. Uh, and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem, Which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel reign over you, or that one reign over you? Remember that I am your own flesh and bone. Here's what he's saying. Um, Do you want, since, since Gideon didn't name anybody, and we've got 70 of them over there, you want to be ruled by 70? I mean, nobody wants to get on an airplane that has 70 pilots, right? That's kind of the mentality. You want to be ruled by 70, or you want to be ruled by one? And he was obviously very uh, persuasive in his speech. Verse 3, And his mother's brothers spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem, and their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, He is our brother. So they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of baal Bereith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. And he went to his father's house at Orphrah, 
And he killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Gideon, or Jerubbabel, on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left because he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together all of Beth Milo, and they went and they made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. So, um, and look at verse 22, chapter 9 and verse 22. Flip over there. Uh, And Abimelech reigned over Israel uh, after Abimelech had reigned over Israel for three years. And we'll pick up that story in just a moment, but let me stop. So, Gideon dies. Gideon has resisted dynasty. Nope, don't don't want my family to be the ruling family. But because he did, there's somebody ready to step in. And so Gideon's um, son by his concubine, uh, Abimelech, takes over and kills all the 70 sons of, of Gideon by his wives. And then Abimelech is made king. Verse 23. Uh, after Abimelech has reigned over Israel three years, God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, and the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Um, I want you to, there's a war that takes place. I'm not going to take time to read all of that. I could read you the whole book of Judges, and, and it would not be the best bedtime story you've ever heard. I can promise you that. But let's, get, let's, let's cut to the chase. Go to verse 50. Um, so there's a battle going on, right? There's a battle going on because now the Shechemites have decided they're not all that fond of Mr. Abimelech. Um, and isn't that always the truth? People that love you for a while will hate you later, and that's exactly what's happening here. Verse 50, Abimelech went to Thebes, and he encamped against Thebes, and he took it. But there was a strong tower in the city, and all, of, and all the men and women, all the people of the city fled there. They shut themselves in, and then they went to the top of the tower. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it. He's trying to get these people. And he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. Verse 53. This is the day, by the way, the the section of Judges. This is a day for the women, all right? Because a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head. He's down at the bottom of the tower. She drops a millstone on his head and crushes his skull. These women are ruthless. I'm telling you, one drove a peg through a guy's temple and another one drops a stone on his head and crushes his skull. And then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said, draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, a woman killed me. So his young man thrust him through and he died. When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place and God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers and all the evil of the men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads, and on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. So there's the story of Gideon and Abimelech. By the way, Jesus refers to that story um, in the Gospels, the story of Abimelech and the millstone. Uh, so he verifies or validates that story. So that's uh, that we've got Deborah and Gideon. Any questions or comments? The one question that is off limits is why did God put that in the Bible? I don't have an answer for that. But any any other questions? Yeah, Danny? Uh, The word ephod 
Yeah, an ephod would have been uh, kind of a breastplate kind of garment, and um, this would have been made. Um, the only, this is a silly example. Remember the days when my mother had my shoes bronzed? Do you, anybody, you know, okay? I don't think that's in now. It would be like bronzing an ephod, all right? So it would be made out of, out of metals, okay? All right. Anybody else? Okay, this story is not all that fun at all. This, the Jephthah story is, is actually very sad. Um, chapter 10 and verse 7. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them now into the hands of the Philistines. Um, and, um, and into the hands of the people of Ammon. So the Ammonites and the Philistines. From that year, they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 um, for 18 years. Verse 10, the children of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we've sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and the Amorites and from the, Am- and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistine and the Sidonians, and the Amalekites? Verse 13, yet you have forsaken me, therefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. Children of Israel said to the Lord, We've sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. So they put away the foreign gods among them. They served the Lord. And uh, his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. And so the people of Ammon together encamped around Gilead. And the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mitzpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So they find themselves again. Same situation. This time, God shows some real frustration with them. It's like, I've done this several times now. And uh, you're on your own, basically, is what God said. But then then they, they seem to... Um, they seem to put action to their words. They got rid of their foreign gods. And it seems that God in his mercy is going to relent and uh, is, is going to stand with them again. And so now they're ready to fight. And they decide who's going to be the head. We'll go to chapter 11. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, Gileadite, he was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. And... Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out. And they said to him, you will have no inheritance in our father's house, for you you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. So, um, So Jephthah's beginnings was he was the son of a harlot, and his other brothers didn't count him as one of them, and so they drove him out. Again, uh, we see that kind of thing in the Old Testament. I mean, Joseph was hated by his brothers, not because he was born of a harlot, but he was just hated by his brothers. A lot of family conflict uh, that's shown in the Old Testament. But um, we get to verse 4. So Jephthah's been pushed away. He flees, and he's living in the land of Tob. He is away from his family 
But it comes to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. So it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah. Because even though he was the son of a harlot, man, he was a good fighter. And so they went to get Jephthah. And they came to him and said, come be our commander, that we can fight against Ammon. And Jephthah said to the elders, did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do according to your words. And Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all of his words before the Lord in Mitzvah. So um, they come now to get his help. And let's flip over to chapter 11 and verse 29. Uh, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. He's now their leader. And through Mitzvah. And from Mitzvah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah, foolish vow. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So he makes this promise. Jephthah says, when I, uh, if you will, God, if you will be with me and deliver them over to me, when I come home, the first thing that comes out of my house to greet me, expecting it to be some animal, um, I will sacrifice that to the Lord. So he advanced, verse 32, toward the people of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them in verse uh, 33. The end of verse 33, thus the people of Ammon were subdued. Verse 34, when Jephthah came to his house at Mitzvah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. And she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son or daughter. And when it came, came to pass, when he saw her, that he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, My father, if you've given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you from your, of your enemies, the people of Ammon. And he said, she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months, that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, go, and he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with her, which she had vowed. She knew no man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Bizarre story. Um, I'm going to just tell you a couple of things um, that you can think about. Um, so obviously his vow was first thing that comes out of the house I'll sacrifice never thinking it would be his only child it was so um, he says I cannot go back on my vow now I, I want to be so very careful with this we, we have um, 
we've, we've done a disservice to how we preach the Old Testament. That's why you always hear me say, don't sanitize it, don't, don't clean it up, but don't, and don't spiritualize it. Because um, it's not a story of great men of God and great women of God for the most part. It's a story of broken humanity and their sin and their failure and how somehow in the midst of that, God still brings us together. But, but I will tell you this, some really struggle with this text. First of all, um, do not read into the fact that Jephthah said, I cannot break this vow. Do not read into that, that God would have judged him had he not kept the vow. I mean, look at the life of Jephthah. He was not some godly man. The, the, the vow he made was pretty frivolous. He felt like he had to keep it. My point is, I, we're all going to very quickly say God would not allow child sacrifice, and I would agree. I don't think God was holding him to this. He felt like he was, all right? But again, um, Jephthah is not really the um, pinnacle of godliness and holiness. Some people have argued, and that there is some uh, phraseology in the Hebrew text that might lean toward this, that it was not actually the sacrifice of her physically, uh, as far as death, that he did not offer her as a human sacrifice, but that the sacrifice that was that she had to remain a virgin the rest of her life. And that's why she said, let me go two months into the mountain and bewail my virginity. Um, and, and, so, and so she was never able to marry, possibly never able to have children. That is a possibility. Most people still believe that Jephthah did carry out a, a human sacrifice. I, I I'm not, don't even know that I want to take a stand on that. I don't think there's enough evidence either way. But the, the fact is, we are to be very careful about the foolish vows we make when we try to manipulate God. If you'll do this for me, I'll do this for you. Um, this is just a reminder. Ecclesiastes talks about how careful we should be when we go to the house of the Lord. Speak little, listen a lot. And, and to think that we can pull strings and get God to do what we want to do sometimes can really backfire. And I think, I think there's a warning here. This is how I think we should preach the Old Testament text. Learn from it. Don't make the same dumb mistakes to think that we can make some silly vow and get God to work like a marionette on our puppet string. And, and so I don't think the issue even here is to try to unpack did she die or did she remain a virgin. We're not sure. But there was a great price paid because not of a godly vow, but a foolish vow that was made. All right. So do with that what you want. Um, those are kind of the issues uh, and how some explain it. And I'll, any, any questions or thoughts, comments, uh, anybody? All right. Let's go on to Samson, another story you're pretty familiar with. Uh, Samson actually takes three chapters. Um, I, I'm not, we're not going to rehearse all of the stories. In fact, I think I'll just tell you the story of Samson from my memory the best I can. So if you catch me on a, a little side note and I don't get it something exactly right, just forgive me or tell me afterwards or raise your hand and tell me I'm stupid. Any of those things will work. But um, Samson uh, has a supernatural birth. Um, God speaks to his parents and says that you're going to have a child, you're going to have a son, he's going to have great strength, and, and he is to keep the Nazarite vow. Um, the Nazarite vow would mean no cutting of hair, 
um, the, the no drinking of wine. Uh, he has great physical strength, but the story of, of Samson is he also has a great weakness for Philistine women. I mean, that's the bottom line. He has great physical strength, but he cannot resist Philistine women. He falls there time and time again. I, I would, um, chapter 13, let me do give you the setting for chapter 13 and verse 1. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So Samson emerges as a leader when they are under Philistine um, oppression. So his birth is his birth is prophesied in chapter 13, verses 2 through 5. In chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, um, he finds a Philistine woman that he wants to marry. And his parents don't want him to marry her. And, but Samson begs and pleads and conjoles. And so they get the woman for him. And uh, thus the beginning of, of his downfall. Uh, you may remember uh, the story that you'll find in chapter 14, verses 5 and following, where a lion, he's, he's walking along the road, and a lion attacks him, and he tears into the lion and uh, rips the lion apart. And then a few days later, he's passing that same way, hungry, and uh, there are bees that have formed a nest in the carcass of that lion, and there's honey there that that he draws from, that sustains him. So it's a kind of a cool story. Um, of course, he takes out a bunch of Philistines with, the, uh, with a donkey's jawbone. Um, he he uh, burns the fields of the Philistines uh, with the fox's tails tied together, all sorts of stories like that. Um, but, but the story that we're most familiar with, of course, is Delilah, chapter 16. Another Philistine woman falls in love with, um, gives himself to her, and um, she is commissioned. This story, I, I'm sorry, but it just blows my mind. I, I just, um, she is commissioned by the Philistines to find out what makes him so strong. And so, you know, she's, she's rubbing his face and his hair, and, and, and she's trying to relax him and... and says, honey, if you really love me, tell, you what, tell me why you're so strong, you know. And, and so he thinks he can trust her. And he says, if you tie my hair in seven fresh bowstrings, um, I will lose my strength. And so he falls asleep and she ties his hair that way. And then she goes and gets her friends, the Philistines, and says, hey, he's in there. And, uh, and then she wakes him up and says, Samson, the Philistines be upon me. Well, he's lied to her, of course. And he whips the Philistines. But he stays with Delilah. Okay, I just don't get this. That, uh, he stays with Delilah, and, uh, and then she asks a second time. You know the story. New ropes. Tie my hair in new ropes. And so she ties his hair in new ropes. She goes and calls her friends, the Philistines, and they come in. He's here. He's asleep. You can get him now. And, um, and then she awakens Samson, and he stands up and, and takes out the Philistines. And then third time, third time, three times, seriously, actually four times, third time, weave my uh, hair into seven locks. And then he falls asleep. Samson, the Philistines are upon me, and he wipes them out again. And um, guys, join me and say, 
we are not this stupid, right? We are not this stupid. Don't ask <laughs> Yeah, I didn't ask. I asked the men, yes. Love is blind. Oh, no, love is stupid. This is stupid. Fourth time. Fourth time, he actually tells her, cut off my hair. And so she cuts off his hair. She calls the Philistines. And, of course, he is, he is captured. And at the end of chapter 16, um, at, at the end of chapter 16, his eyes are gouged out. And he's paraded around in the, in the temple. Um, and he's just a madman. But his hair begins to grow back. And... Um, he says, God, just one more time, give me strength. And God gives him strength. And he pushes down the pillars of the temple and more people are killed. More Philistines are killed than any time in his life. But what a sad, what a sad tragic ending for someone that God prophesied his birth and uh, so anointed but, but could, not, could not think rationally. There's a really sad, sad um, verse in the Samson story that he rose up like before and did not know that the Holy Spirit had left him. That's a really sad... If there's, if there's a place that we need to linger and reflect on... Um, I, I mean, the story seems so ludicrous, but, but the story still says there is, there is a folly that becomes so entangled in, in love with the world that it will trade the most precious gift of God's Spirit and that's what Samson ultimately did. That's the lesson to learn. Um, don't don't get to that point. Don't play with sin. And that's that's what what Samson did. Um, the final section, and this is where we will uh, wrap up. Well, we'll get to Ruth too. I'll close with Ruth in the last four or five minutes. But um, chapter seventeen through twenty-one. So the first section, there was no longer a Joshua. The second section was the period of Judges. And then chapter 17 through 21, in those days there was no king. Uh, just to, to, I, I use that phrase just to reiterate. In fact, you see it in, you may want to jot these verses down, 17.6, 18.1, and 21.25. Four times it says, in those days there was no king. The point is, when there's nobody in charge, people go crazy. And sinful people go, it, go crazy. And these two final stories are um, two of the worst stories, I think, in all of Scripture. Um, let's go to chapter 17. And I, I'm gonna, I, because to do it justice, I probably need to read a lot of it. I'll read quickly. Um, Chapter 17, verse 1, there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim, his name was Micah, he said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, here is the silver with me, I took it. So he tells, tells his mom, I'm the one that took it. And his mother said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son. So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver, she said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. Thus he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith, and he made it into a carved image 
and a molded image, and they were in the house of Micah. The man Micah had a shrine, and he made, again, an ephod and a household and household idols, and he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. All right, so this story begins by Micah making his own shrine and um, making his own ephod, his own idol, and having his own priest. Makes one of his servants his own priest. Again, look at 17.6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Look at um, verse 7 now. I'm going to read fast. There was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah. He was a Levite, and he was staying there. The man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. He came to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm on my way to find a place to stay. And Micah said, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me. And I will give you 10 shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes, and your sustenance. So the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became like one of his sons to him. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as a priest. Now, just let me just make a, a couple of comments here. Again, not only did they have no rule from a king, there was no king in Israel, and everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Everybody's got their own religion going on here too. No more are they worshiping through a priest and, a, and, and the Levites. Now this guy just says, I'll hire my own Levite. And again, wow. I, I, I mean, I, it's maybe a little hard to fast forward to 2019, but maybe if you're a little bit, um, if you're a little bit creative, you can see that's kind of thing we're doing. Setting up our own little God. We don't need the body of Christ. We don't need, you know, we don't need a fellowship. We don't need a religion. We just need our own little thing. And that's exactly what Micah has done. Now, chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites, they were still looking for an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day, their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. Um, So the tribe of Dan is still looking for their own land. Look at verse 3. I need to hurry. While they were at the house of Micah, actually go to verse 2. The children of Dan, they sent five men of their family. They're looking for land, all right? And they sent them from their territory, men of valor. And uh, they went to spy out the land. And they said to them, go search the land. So they went to the mountains of Ephraim. And they went to the house of Micah, the guy who has his own shrine. And they stay there. While they were at the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. They turned aside and said to him, who brought you here and what are you doing in this place? Uh, What do you have here? And he said to them, uh, thus and so Micah did for me. He has hired me and I have become his priest. So they said to him, please inquire of God that we may know whether the journey on which we go will be prosperous. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The presence of the Lord be with you. So these five men, they're looking for land. They end up at Micah's house, right? And they meet this priest that Micah's paying, and they have him prophesy to them. And he says, go in peace. God will be with you. So verse 7, they departed, and they went to Laish. 
They saw the people who were there, how they dwelt safely in the manner of the, uh, the Sidonians. They were quiet and secure. There were no rulers in the land who might put them to shame for anything. Verse 8, the spies came back to their brethren at Zorah and Eschatol. And the brethren said to him, tell us what your report is. And they said, uh, rise, let us go up against them. We've seen the land. Indeed, it's good. Would you do nothing? Do not hesitate to go and enter to possess the land. So they came back and said, we can take this land. Uh, when you go, you will come to a secure people in a large land, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything. Verse 11, 600 men of the family of the Danites went from there, from Zorah and es- Eschatol, Esteol, excuse me, armed with weapons of war. And they went up and they encamped in Kirchoth, Jerem, and Judah, and they called the place um, Mahane Dan to this day. It's west of Kirjath Jerem. And they passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim, and they came, look, to the house of Micah. Verse um, 14. The five men who had gone out to spy out the country of Laish answered and said to their brethren, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod, household idols, a carved image, a molded image? Now, therefore, consider what you should do. So they turned aside there, and they came to the house of the young Levite men, to the house of Micah, and greeted him. Then 600 men, armed with their weapons of war, who were with the children of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to spy out the land went up. Entering there, they took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image. The priest stood at the entrance of the gate with 600 men who were armed with weapons of war. And then in verses 18 through 27, I won't probably read them all. Let me skip around. When these went into Micah's house, they took the carved image, and he said to them, what are you doing? And they said, be quiet, put your hand over your mouth, and come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. It's better for you to be a priest to the household of one man. Is it better? Or that you be a priest to a tribe. And so the Danites, they, they hijack or kidnap, excuse me, this priest. And they take him to be with them. The Danites do. Look at um, verse number 27. So they took the things Micah had made and the priests who had belonged to him And they went to Laish to be a quiet people and secure. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and they burned the city with fire. So the Danites found land. They found a priest. They took him out of Micah's house. And they said, we want you to come and be our priest. Now, chapter 19 and verse 1. Again, no king in the land. And uh, there was a certain Levite staying in a remote Uh, mountain of Ephraim, and he took for himself a concubine uh, from Bethlehem in Judah. And in verse number two, but his concubine played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for four months. So He takes a wife, takes a concubine, then she cheats on him and she leaves and she is away for four months. The Levite decides to go after her. Verse 3, he rose and he went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. Now, I'm not going to take time to read all of these verses, but in verses 3 through 10, he goes to, um, he finds her, she is staying with her father and... um, she says, he says, I want to take her back. And the father said, okay, if she wants to go back, that's fine. 
but why don't you stay here another night? And it's getting kind of late. And then another night. Finally, they get up and leave. So now he's, this, this Levite has gone. He has, he has rescued, or not rescued, but brought, he's bringing back his concubine back to his house. Um, verse 11, and they were near Jabus. The day was far spent. Servant said to his master, come please, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master said, we will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners. So they, they kept going. Verse 13, let's draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. And uh, they passed by and they went their way and the sun went down on them near Gibeah. And so this is where they land, Gibeah, which belongs to the Benjamites. Um, let me just tell you the rest of the story real quickly. It's an ugly story, but, but they spend the night there. And um, there are uh, um, homosexual men very much like uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah that tried to get to the Levite that night and try to get to the men in the house. Um, horrible story. Again, uh, it, it's, it's sad to even talk about, but ultimately the concubine is thrown out and she is, she is repeatedly abused all night long. And um, the next morning... Uh, the Levite awakens and he finds that his concubine has been uh, horribly abused and, and ultimately is dead from that abuse, from that repeated rape. And um, if you get to, uh, well, I'll just, I'll tell you the story again. And so this, uh, this Levite, in one of the most grotesque things ever, cuts her body into pieces and sends her body to the rest of the tribes of Israel to show them what the Benjamites have done to this woman. All right? Um, fast forward, the rest of Israel, this is in chapter uh, 20, verses 20 through 47, the rest of Israel rises up against the Benjamites. And they destroy the Benjamites. They are, they're going to come to the rescue. But they destroy the Benjamites and, and wipe out um, the Benjamites almost completely. And then they start feeling bad for that because they said, now we're going to have an empty tribe. And uh, there are no women that these men can marry. But we can't, uh, the few men that are left, there's no women for them to marry. And they're not going to raise up the tribe of Benjamin. And so um, they, they kill some from, um, I don't have, I guess from Gibeah. And um, to repopulate the Benjamites, give them a few, but that's not enough. And then they have this really bizarre thing where they say, there's going to be a, a dance going on. There's going to be a party. And any of the Benjamite men that want to run out and take one of the women for themselves, they can. And so, again, this is so bizarre. This is how the Benjamite tribe gets repopulated. And, um, again, a foolish vow that we're going to wipe them out, and then they have to come by this horribly foolish measure to repopulate the Benjamites. And you can read that in chapter 21. Now, let me uh, read chapter 21 and verse 25. Not that you've already heard this verse. Um, 
But in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is just horrific, horrific life that's being lived completely apart from God, no king, no authority, and a total disrespect for God. It is in that context, you know the story of Ruth. I don't have to retell it to you. With all of that ugliness going on in the time of Judges, Ruth tells us the story of a man by the the name of Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, who decide to go to Moab because there was a famine in Bethlehem. And they go to Moab, and while they're there, Malon and Kilion marry two Moabite women, and their names, of course, are Orpah and Ruth. Elimelech dies. Malon and Kilion die. So it is, it, is, it is Naomi, who is the mother or mother-in-law, and her two daughters-in-law, who are Moabites. Naomi's an Israelite, and they're living in Moab. And Naomi says, there's nothing left for me here. I'm going to go back home. You ladies need to stay in Moab where you can find a husband. And Orpah says, okay, I'll stay. Ruth says, no, I'm going with you. You've been kind to me. So Ruth goes back with, again, in a period of time when everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes and they're giving total disregard to God and not caring for any authority, you have this Moabite woman who is outshining all the Israelites. Say, no, wherever you go, I'm going to go with you. Your God's going to be my God. Totally, again, in the midst of all of this perverseness, there is a foreign woman who is more godly than all of them. And she goes and uh, she stays with Naomi. She goes back to Bethlehem. She meets up with Boaz, right, who is a family member who has the right to marry her and redeem the property of Elimelech, who is dead. But if he marries a Moabite, he could mar his own inheritance. There is a closer relative that really has first dibs on the property and Ruth. And he says, I love the property, but I don't want to marry a Moabite woman because it might... Now, I don't, there weren't many good Israelite women right then. The best one in the whole story is this Moabite woman, but he passes over her. So Boaz says, I'll marry her and I'll buy the land back. He marries Ruth and Ruth and Boaz marry and they have a son and you know the story and his name is Obed. And then Obed has a son named Jesse and Jesse has a son named David. All right. That's the, the story of Judges is is the perverseness, the sensuality, the ugliness, the sinfulness of humanity outside of God. And the story of Ruth is, in the midst of all of that, if there's a heart turned toward God, God can still use them, and God can still allow his grace to overcome and superabound the sin that, that was so horrible in the book of Judges. That was a really quick telling of the back half of Judges, but it, it doesn't, I'm not too excited about spending too much time there. Any questions or comments? All right. God bless you. Have a great afternoon. We'll see you all Sunday.